Yo, yo, what's up, everyone? Thanks for joining in to episode number two of the podcast. I'm Pete Forsey, and we got a great show lined up for you here today. Obviously, we had conference championship weekend this past Sunday. I'm going to dive fully into that, talk about what went on there and everything surrounding this past Sunday and its mark in NFL history. I'll also talk a little quarterback play. Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, where are they headed? Where are they currently? And where were they? And then for the first time on the pod, I'm going to get into baseball. Hall of Fame was this week, class of 2019 announced. I'm going to tell you my thoughts on that in the hall specifically. And then for the very first time, you get to fire at Forsey. Yes, your opportunity to let me hear what you have to say. We got mailbag questions. We got voicemails. I'm going to dive right in. Thanks again for tuning in to episode two of the podcast. Only one place to start. That's New Orleans, Louisiana, down in the Superdome. Rams Saints will go to the second to last drive. The drive that the Rams tied it up 20 to 20, in which Jared Goff drew a face mask penalty from a New Orleans defender that set up first and goal. Oh, yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah, that's right. There was another missed call in the game, ladies and gentlemen. One that was influential, but one that we were not able to measure visually in our minds. All calls matter. Every single one of them. They're all equal. Just because we can sequentially visualize the pattern of events that are likely to happen when there's, say, a minute and 50 seconds left, or however much time was left when Nikel Roby Coleman slammed into Tommy Lee Lewis illegally, just because we can visualize that doesn't make it more important. All calls matter. And while I wanted them to be enforced, I accept that they're missed. And guess what? There's no guarantees, had that call been enforced correctly, Nikel Roby Coleman's, that the Saints would have won. By my count, 30 seconds would have been left on the clock. So this idea that the Saints were robbed? Yeah, no. Sorry. My gosh. Just because something's likely... Doesn't mean it's going to happen. We don't even have to leave the playoffs this year. We can go back to Chicago, Philadelphia. Missed field goals happen all the time. Who's to say it would have gone through the uprights? Missed calls happen. And in this situation, the better team won the football game. The team that was better that day, the Rams, have advanced to the Super Bowl. Look, I again, I wish this wouldn't have happened. I wish the calls would have been enforced. But if you can't accept that an official has a physical and mental lapse in judgment, I, I truly feel sorry for you because you probably assign blame in the wrong areas all the time in other aspects of life. Misexecution, that's what this comes down to. The official didn't execute. And we want we want a better solution via replay or whatever these situations occur. But when the players don't execute, we accept them. I'm not saying it's apples to apples comparison in carrying out each respective duty. But guess what? It requires the same thing. Mental and physical focus. Officials don't have an easy job. Don't kid yourself. Is it hard to wrap our minds around how someone stationary in that situation didn't see the play clearly? It is. I I absolutely agree. But somehow, some way, these things happen, even at the miss-inopportune times. You either accept them, or you don't. 
Now, if you want to shift it to replay and review, all I can say is that replay will never be the savior for everything. It won't. If you want to make everything reviewable, that's not the solution. It's not a snap of the fingers. Everything will be fine and well because all reviewable will be abused. Holding penalties when there are critical moments in future games, that's what's going to happen. Or if you don't want all reviewable, if you want neutral arbiter to communicate down with communicate down with the officials on the field when situations like this occur, you'd be relying on someone to make a sound decision in a matter of a few seconds. We're in the era of two-minute offenses. We're in the era of passing. People will rush up to the line of scrimmage, and then we'll be ticked off at the individual for not deliberating soon enough. There is no easy solution, everyone. This could be as good as it gets. Did we have a bad day Sunday? Yeah, we did. But the truth of the matter is, just because we think there should be a better way doesn't mean there necessarily is. I don't respect those that say, well, they need to figure something out. I don't know what it is, but they need to figure something out. Guess what? If you don't have the answer, I don't have the answer, that doesn't necessarily mean the person charged or pressed with finding the answer does either. It just means they're better suited to finding it. But that doesn't mean the solution is out there. It means we're just in search of it. The Rams overcame what they were given, the hand they were dealt, the challenges they faced, whether it was the opponent, the atmosphere, or the officials. They are advancing to the Super Bowl, and they deserve it. AFC Conference Championship game. Patriots-Chiefs. Man, this was a good one. Looks like it was going to be uh, handled pretty securely by the Pats to open the gate, but then the fourth quarter happened. Really the second half, but the fourth quarter was obviously the climax of everything. And uh, we, we got an instant classic. I'll begin here. 43 minutes, 59 seconds. Patriots' time of possession. Chiefs' time of possession, 20 minutes, 53 seconds. The Chiefs lost the game because they didn't possess the ball long enough. Look no further than the first drive. The New England Patriots had the football. They went 15 plays, 80 yards, 8 minutes and 5 seconds. That was the most debilitating thing that happened to the Chiefs that game. I could not believe that they let themselves get out-toughed, out-physically pounded by the Patriots after seeing what was on tape against the Chargers the week before. I, I was absolutely beside myself when I saw that. If we go all the way to the end of the game, overtime, three third and tens that they let them execute for 50 total yards, I mean, that was that was just classic Kansas City Chiefs defense. Cover five, Steven Nelson, Kendall Fuller, take one man, Julian Edelman open, boom, easy 20 yards for the Patriots, first down. Second play, I give credit to New England, I'll tip my cap there. Rub technique, Edelman open once again, 15 yards, first down, New England. But the third one, the safety, I believe, was Daniel Sorensen. Cheats a little bit, says he's had enough of Edelman picking up first downs. Gives just the slimmest of margins for Tom Brady, and he hits Gronkowski 15 yards, first down, New England. You know the rest. Burke had 10 yards, Burke had 3 yards, Rex Burke had for 2. Touchdown, game over, Patriots win. This game came down to one team executing at a higher level than the other. 
the Kansas City Chiefs got six pressures on Tom Brady on 46 dropbacks. It was not enough. The Patriots played an entire game playing at a high level and didn't waste any minutes during the game like the Chiefs did. The Chiefs didn't show up until the third quarter, and it bit them. This game was not about officials, but we do have to talk about officials, and namely we just got to talk about the fourth quarter. I count six calls, six calls that were split amongst individuals and really just the masses, I should say. I see the officials going four for six. The two calls that I think that they botched, one for New England, one for KC. Chris Jones roughing the passer, Chris Conley no call on a pick play. Some have deemed that one legal. I haven't gotten an explanation for it. I've been searching for one. Haven't found it yet. If someone can bring that to my attention, I will happily back off that. But it sure looked like Chris Conley bolted right into a New England defender and never looked back for a catch. Four for six. I don't think officiating had an effect on this game. But even despite that, even despite the ones that were enforced properly, like D Ford's offsides, somehow is growing to uh, the dismay of many. Coach Reed even brought it up at his news conference the next day. He talked about how typically with offsides penalties, there's often a warning to the player and or the sideline. And he brought this up, and it sure sounded like a cop-out. I don't know why he would bring that up if he wasn't okay with it. So that's why I believe he did bring it up. And I like Coach Reed. I think he's an excellent coach, and he's going to win a Super Bowl someday. But I, I cannot believe he's suggesting that an official should not have enforced an infraction that was committed. It reminds me of a personal experience myself. I uh, My very first job, I was an umpire in baseball in a recreational league. And one day, I'm uh, officiating a fourth-grade game, and to start the game, out comes the starting pitcher for one team. And it's pretty clear that he hasn't had a lot of experience pitching. Doesn't have a great grasp on the rules, and I can tell from the beginning it's going to be a long day. And long story short, throughout the game, um, I'm calling a balk just about every other batter. In total, I called 16 on one pitching staff. And a coach was, uh, he was letting me have it a little bit. He thought I should have only enforced the egregious balks, the ones of the highest degree, and should have let the ones of the lower slip. I simply told him that I cannot do that because I leave myself open to getting burned, not only by the opponent, but also him in case the opponent, once they are in the field, if they commit an infraction, I do not call it. It's only The only way it can happen is if I call everything that I see. Black and white are the only ways rules are abide by, or not. Anyway, the game ends, and we're walking away, and the coach decides he's not done with me, and he's, he simply tells me that no one showed up to the game to watch me umpire. And my remark back to him was that, he certainly didn't show up to coach that day. And you can imagine how that went over. Not too well. A couple of emails exchanged between him and my boss, and I didn't umpire many games shortly thereafter. But I bring this up because I think it's absolutely preposterous. After a game in New Orleans in which there was a no call, that a coach would even suggest that something should not have been called. That's what I got from Coach Reed. D. Ford was offsides. He admitted it. But he was suggesting that there should have been a warning. And I cannot, I cannot grasp that. I cannot grasp that because 
an AFC championship official has earned the right to be there based on his performance, and he is certainly being watched, and he is certainly going to get chosen again based on how he performs there. He does not have the luxury of enforcing a warning at that moment in a game. Maybe D. Ford wasn't lined up offsides until that very play. I certainly didn't hear anything about it up until that point. The official must throw the flag. He cannot observe a gentleman's agreement. This game was not about officials. As much as people want to make it out to be, whether it's coaches, fans, media members alike, this game was about one team executing at a higher level than the other. The Patriots were better than the Chiefs. That's why they're going to the Super Bowl. I'm going to transition back into the Rams here because I want to talk about Jared Goff. Earlier this week, there was a report by a Philadelphia columnist who went into detail about how Carson Wentz hasn't been necessarily a model teammate and the most coachable player. And Jared Goff and Carson Wentz obviously will always be linked because of their 1-2 draft status in the 2016 NFL Draft. Eagles taking Wentz, Rams taking Goff, and there's been much debate that the second player taken in Wentz is the better player and how bogus it was that the Rams even thought Goff would be the better player after seeing Wentz early on in the 2017 season. But as we sit here today, about 10 days before Super Bowl 53, Jared Goff is in the Super Bowl and his teammates publicly are talking about how great of a teammate he is how much they love playing for him, both his offensive linemen. Carson Wentz, on the other hand, he has teammates fighting for him, dismissing the report that came out Monday morning. But there were several sources, according to this Philadelphia columnist, his name is escaping me, that said Carson's biggest problem is Carson Wentz. Can't get him out of his own way. Carson isn't always receptive of coaching. He didn't want to run full stuff, as he put it. He didn't want to run the plays that Nick Foles was asked to run when he was playing quarterback. This is a classic example of fans reacting far too soon. I got criticized and laughed at for sticking up for the Rams after the rough 2016 season. Golf did not play well, and neither did the team. National, local media members alike Said he was a bust. They botched the pick. How the heck did you not take Carson Wentz after moving up to number one in the draft? And now look where we are now. One guy can't stay on the field. The other guy hasn't missed a start since taking over late in the 2016 season. We are far, far too reactive in this world. We have no sense of letting time run its course, evaluating properly each and every decision individually. Jared Goff was put into an impossible situation in 2016. Impossible. Coach with an outdated approach. Offensive lineman who didn't even deserve to be in the league. Receivers who, I don't even know where they are anymore. And Carson Wentz is put into Philadelphia with one of the brightest young head coaches, Doug Peterson. Young in terms of experience. It's, it's laughable how so many people will take the most minute sample size and derive a final conclusion, give support around him, give him an environment, and yeah, he will succeed. Now, Carson Wentz, if you were to ask me who I think the better talent is, I would say it's him. But the idea that the Rams 
botched a pick. Far from it. Maybe they liked more about golf. Maybe they thought he was safer. California instead of North Dakota State. I can get that. I can get on board with that. But this idea that they threw away the pick, no, no, no. As we sit here today in early 2019, one is about to head to Atlanta to media day and talk about the Super Bowl. The other is fighting for his character. Jared Goff is just fine. The Rams are just fine. So are the Eagles. But man, man, how times have changed since early 2016. Happy to be talking about baseball for the first time here on the podcast. Big baseball fan. Still enjoy watching it quite a bit. I know most people pretty much just consume it through fantasy and highlights on their smartphones and whatnot. Not so much enjoying actually sitting down and watching it, but I'm one of the few that does. And no better time than now to start talking about baseball because we just had the Hall of Fame class of 2019 announced earlier this week. Mike Mussina, Mariano Rivera, Edgar Martinez, and Roy the Doc Holliday all inducted. All deserving and you can go to their baseball reference page and you can see all their stats and I think everyone would agree that each of these guys deserves to be in the hall. So I'm not going to talk about each of them individually and what I think of them because they're all deserving and they are now in baseball immortality. But what I do want to talk about is the Hall of Fame itself and just really how it works because there's a lot that frustrates me and there's some things that I like about it, namely the subjectivity and how everybody kind of has their open interpretation of what a Hall of Famer looks like. However, they do have some guidelines and I'll get to that in a minute. But the first thing I want to talk about, and this just irks me to no end, probably the biggest thing, biggest problem that I have with the Hall of Fame is the ballot and the rule of 10. For those of you that don't know, each voter for the Baseball Writers Association of America can only vote for a maximum of 10 individuals for each ballot. And this is just preposterous. I'm not sure exactly how this came about. I once heard a story that it was because they wanted to limit the classes each July because they didn't want the ceremonies running too long on a hot July afternoon, forcing everyone to bear with the heat that day. And I could not believe my ears when I heard that. Or read that, I can't recall. But I thought it was just ludicrous that someone could fall off the ballot and therefore sacrifice enshrinement into the Hall of Fame, a player, because we're worried about the classes being too big and the afternoon taking too long. Now look, some people take far too much time up there. Okay, John Smoltz, he damn near talked for like two hours. He talked about his career, family, thanked everyone, and then he went on to talk about Tommy John surgery and the epidemic that he thinks that it is. It was actually pretty good, but just not the time nor the place. It was like an hour and 45 minutes. It's like, John, look, you got to cut this down. And, and that's the solution there. If that's the reason we don't have a binary ballot, that's what I want. Yes or no. Is this guy a Hall of Famer? If that's the solution that we just got to cut down the ceremony, okay? Like, it's simple. You get 20 minutes, that's it, move on. I don't care if there's an eight-man class. That's fine. Is the guy a Hall of Famer or not? I don't want people having to, you know, logically or, you know, you know, just put guys on the ballot and, f- and not put guys on the ballot based off if they're going to fall off or not. That's just not fair to the voters. It's not fair to the candidates. It's not fair to anyone. We need to change that. Secondly, there are voters, guys that I respect a great deal, that admittedly just omit 
some of the things they need to evaluate, namely integrity, sportsmanship, and character. I know those are the ones that people don't care about the most. They just care about player's record, value to his team, production. And I get that. And I understand if you want the the former three criteria to be thrown out. That's fine. I get it. But if you're a voter, someone who signed a code of conduct and said, yes, I will evaluate these. Yes, I will consider all of these aspects when picking Hall of Famers. And then you just omit them. You admittedly say in your columns come January that I don't consider those things. I don't understand why you're not reprimanded for this. How is there no accountability? Whether you like them or not, you signed up and said, I will consider these things. This is no way to change how things are done. There's a separate time and place for that. It's just a dereliction of duty. And it's costing some people, rising people up the, uh, up the percentages into the Hall of Fame. I can't respect people who just totally disregard a responsibility of theirs when it comes to the Hall of Fame. That's the second change that needs to happen. Third, private ballots. Enough with the private ballots. Okay, there's too great of an interest. I have too great of an interest. You have too great of an interest. We deserve to know all the writers who voted and whom they voted for. Now, look, I'm, I'll be the first to tell you the Hall of Fame is not about the fans. Okay, it's a separate entity to Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is all about the fans because that's who drives, you know, the revenue. But this is a situation where you shouldn't be considering the fans primarily. It's those within the industry and those that cover the game that should be enshrining those that exemplify best what a baseball Hall of Famer is all about. But in this instance, we deserve to know who's going in. There's too big of a public interest. I got way too many qualms with that. So enough with that. Enough with the private ballots, enough with voters not carrying out their responsibilities, and let's go to a binary ballot. Yes, no, is this guy a Hall of Famer? That's it. All four deserving. This was a good year for the Hall of Fame, but like every year, I want to see some changes. Those are my three that I would do for the Baseball Hall of Fame. All right, let's dive into the mailbag slash voicemail portion of the podcast this is the first time we'll be doing this very excited for it and uh, I'll have some carryover from last week Um, let's begin with Maggie Forsey thank you sis your question is what do you think Tom Brady had for breakfast well this is a fairly easy one because Tom has the same thing just about every morning he has a smoothie and if I had to guess I think he had a blueberry banana avocado smoothie with almond milk he is a, uh, he's one that's very disciplined with his diet, always has these smoothies just about every morning. I have a copy of the TB12 method. I'm looking at it right now. And if you would like that recipe, I can send that to whomever. Um, thank you for the question, Maggie. Okay, moving on. Redmond Riley would love to hear some front runners and dark horses for Bryce Harper. Okay, yeah, so Bryce Harper, best uh, free agent on the market along with Manny Machado. Uh, pretty much renowned. Everyone's in agreement there. So I'm going to cut out all the dead weight here, Redmond. I'm not going to name anyone can be a dark horse, really, because anyone that adds Bryce Harper is a better team. However, I'm going to limit it down here, okay? Nats, Phillies, those are the front runners. I think it's really their race to lose. And I think I think the Nationals really are ahead of the Phillies at this point because I think Mike Rizzo wants him back. He's got a good relationship with Scott Boris, his agent, and he's always been willing to spend a little money. You know, he's he's not a penny pincher. If it means getting an impactful player, he'll pay a little extra, but he won't be stupid at the same time. And they have the resources to do it. It will just mean 
probably having to shed off some payroll in other areas, namely Adam Eaton, Anthony Rendon next year. The Phillies, of course, said they're going to spend stupid, so they really should be more aggressive than they are, I think. Uh, Bryce would do wonders for them, both on the field and marketability, and it would get people back in the ballpark, which Philadelphia, they saw a rise this past year, but it's been at all-time low since the days of uh, that Philly dynasty in the uh, mid to late 2000s. But the other front runner here, and I think they officially entered the race because the Dodgers just signed A.J. Pollock to a to 55 mil, I believe it is, and four years. The team that's entering the fray here, Houston Astros. I really think they could do it. I think this actually puts them more, more in the picture than they were. Because they can afford them. It will mean saying basically no to their other prospect, Kyle Tucker, who's ready to be in the major leagues and is also a left-handed bat and can handle a corner outfield spot. But you can't bank on him necessarily being good out of the gate. Now, he's very good, and we see Astros players contribute early all the time. But this way, you got Bryce Harper. He's basically, he'll be at a discounted price at this point. If things keep up, he won't get a record-setting contract. I don't think he's getting 10 years. I don't think he's going to get Eh, he might get $300 million. He's not going to get much over $300 million. I don't think he's going to match Giancarlo. So with that said, the Astros will say, sure, if it's going to be this cheap, yeah, it's a practically a bargain. Or not a bargain, but it's, you know, it's doable under our constraints at the moment. So, yeah, we'll take Harper. I think they are in the picture now. It would be really bad if the Nats and Phillies let that happen, but they are definitely uh, better suited than they were just a few hours ago when the Dodgers signed Pollock. My dark horses, and this may not you know, makes sense to some people, but the Yankees are a dark horse, I think, only because they have resources in the outfield already, young talent, um, major production, Judge and Giancarlo. Giancarlo, of course, signed up for five more years, I believe it is, or six. Um, but again, same with the Astros logic. If they say that the it, you know total years is going to go down and we just have to pay the average annual value, we'll happily do that. Um, Machado probably makes more sense for them, but you can't discount the Yankees. And then Rangers and Braves, I think, are two to keep in mind. Tony Romo, of course, tweeted it out earlier. He said that the Rangers uh, will be his team because Bryce and him had a nice nice little exchange. I think John Daniels can't be discounted. They're entering a new ballpark. They need a very impactful hitter because they don't really have guys that are well-rounded at this point. They just have a bunch of guys that do one or two things well. They lost Adrian Beltre. He could fit in nicely. And then the Braves need some outfielders, don't have big payroll, got a lot of good pitching, but they could use an impact bat in the outfield despite signing Nick Marcakis. So I would go front runners: Nats, Phillies, Astros, Dark Horses, Yankees, Rangers, and Braves. That's who I think ends up with Harper when it's all said and done. Okay, moving on. Matthew Tipton. Good to hear from you, Matthew. Matthew's question is, given the outcome of the Rams-Saints game and how big of a missed call the pass interference was, now that we know Goodell had the power to overrule the penalty and put the team back on the field in the same scenario, if you were the commissioner, would you use that power? Or do you feel human error is a part of the game, even when it's that ridiculous? Well, Matthew, um, I kind of signaled this earlier in the podcast. I wouldn't enforce that. And, of course, you're referencing, I believe it's, it's Rule 17, Article th- 2, Action, whatever. It's the rule that came out by Mark Florio earlier this week that basically said when something's that egregious, he can, in fact, put a team back on the field if he believes it's uh, that outrageous. However, 
I feel like it's in there just for protocol reasons, just to like, you know, cover your ass. But it's something that shouldn't and really just should not ever be exercised because it's just a precedent thing. And it's really just so subjective when it comes to which call is impactful and which is not because really, like I was stating, every call is of equal importance because whether you can foresee the impact or you cannot, it doesn't make the call any more important. Like I, I don't, I don't agree with just because we don't know, just because there's so much time on a clock in a game that that makes the call less important because a team can make up for it. That doesn't mean a call at the end of the game if it's blown or a no call, whichever we're talking about. doesn't mean that one's more important and we need to fix that. Because with the Rams, who's to say that their face mask penalty couldn't have turned out to be more impactful? The only reason we're not up in arms about that one is because we can't mentally, sequentially again, play it out in our minds how the rest of the game is going to go. But that's not fair. Referees don't pick and choose when to botch calls. So that wouldn't be fair to the Rams if we were to go back and put the the teams back on the field. And I don't think it would be a good precedent to have Commissioner Goodell, who... I always say everybody has their own reasons for hating Goodell. You ask 10 people, you will get 10 different reasons. Do we really want him to exercise this power and then potentially exercise it again down the line? Then the whole conspiracy theory start. Goodell did it because he's buddies with this owner, or Goodell does it because he wants to see this team move on. It's like that would just that would open a can of worms that I really don't think would be good, even though in this instance we think it would be very acceptable. Overall, you just can't do that. I believe in the human element and that errors happen and that somehow, some way, typically the good teams overcome it. And I think that's the case here. The Rams were the better team there in the Super Bowl. But thank you for the question, Matthew. Okay, moving on to Alex Roberts. Alex, I want your opinion on Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and other steroid users in their Hall of Fame status. Well, like the previous one, Alex, I kind of hinted at my thoughts on that when I was talking about the uh, the voters who don't consider integrity, sportsmanship, and character. I'm not one to put admitted steroid users in the Hall of Fame or those strongly linked to them, either or. I can't grasp how people believe we should forgive and move on and put players who put up great numbers produce at a very high level despite the fact that they had help they had some help that wasn't uh, authorized and don't kid yourself it was not authorized people say at the time steroids weren't officially legal well i don't know why people were hiding it then you knew you were a full-blown cheater you didn't talk about it don't ask don't tell policy I don't get how the fundamental element of sport, my best versus your best, the whole reason we sit down and watch and or play, the foundation of sport, we're just going to forgive people who cross that line. And we we forgave them already. We let them back into the game. We didn't take away their money. Cliff Floyd once said, shoot, if I knew there were no repercussions for the money, 
Why the hell wouldn't I use steroids? Sure, we take away their salary now if they're suspended, but the contracts stay intact. There's a line you don't cross. And even if you do, we'll forgive you a little bit. But to put you into the Cooperstown Hall of Fame, make you immortal. And people want to talk about, well, we're not the morality police. Bogus, okay? Bogus. We're not talking about if the guy is a good guy or not. Character is a part of that, but obviously is weighed much less than production. But integrity, sportsmanship, we're talking about fair play here. I always love the the comparison that people bring up. Well, Ty Cobb's in the Hall of Fame, and he was a racist. Yeah, we're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about two people being on a level playing field. And even beyond that, teams being on a level playing field. You know who really misses out on this when people use steroids? It's, it's the second baseman who's trying to make the team at spring training, and the guy next to him is using, and he knows it. You know how hard it is for him not to cross the line as well and say, well, I may as well use if everybody else is. No, he has integrity and he knows it's wrong. And he probably loses out on a job because the other guy is up a notch. I'm not a steroid guy in the Hall of Fame, no, because I believe in the foundation of sport. My best versus your best. Steroid users have no place in Cooperstown. We will move on to Ben Kemper, who will give us our first voicemail on the podcast here. Here is what Ben had to say regarding Drew Brees. Now, Pete, I've heard you talk about a a lot of topics over the years, uh, and and one of the things I'd like to talk about is Drew Brees. Um, I think it's his time. We all know Pat Mahomes is going to win a bunch of Super Bowls and get himself some rings, but I would love to see Drew Brees go out as the all-time passing record with a Super Bowl, another one under his belt. Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think uh, you think he deserves it, Petey? All right. Well, love to hear you talk some more. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you for the call, Ben. Uh, yeah, obviously that was before last Sunday, and he didn't know the implications I'd be talking about now. Talking about deserving a Super Bowl, maybe it's even more appropriate Here's the deal, Ben. Drew Brees is still playing at a high level. I think he's really one that doesn't get the credit that Brady does. Brady obviously wrote the book, The TB12 Method, but someone who is just as well uh, versed and just as well a participant in health and wellness and kind of starting new trends in that scene. Drew Brees is 40 years old, playing as well as ever. I still think his arm strength is there. I think it was really a product this year of him not throwing downfield due to what he had available. I think Drew Brees has still got maybe a year or two at a high level left in him based on uh, everything that I read and see about him. Now, as far as deserving, you got to win the games to advance. His Saints did not, and that's why the Rams are in the Super Bowl. But Drew Brees certainly, I think, has a shot at a title next year. Thank you for the call, Ben. All right, y'all, that's going to do it here for episode two of the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate all the love and support. Please continue to give me the feedback, the comments, your questions on just how the podcast is going or if you got it uh, for any future podcasts. Of course, we're going to preview the Super Bowl next week, so that'll be on the agenda. Give me your questions, comments for that. Slide up in those DMs, man. Hit me up. Let me know what you're thinking. They'll be right here on the podcast next week. I'll play your audio if you leave me a voicemail. Whatever you give me, I will certainly 
put it on air here for everyone to hear. A little bit of business. We are now on Google Play, Stitcher. You can access the podcast that way. Just search the podcast. That's a four, not a D. And uh, yeah, you can play it there. We'll be on iTunes here shortly. Um, As of this recording, we're not on there yet, but you'll be able to leave me those five-star reviews. I'm sure you want to. Uh, But yeah, thanks again for tuning in. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you next week.